My name is Brian Hayes. I'm the program chair for the Chicago chapter of Cornet Global, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon and to introduce today's program, which is Recruiting Real Estate Talent Challenges and Tactics. Um, just a bit of housekeeping before we begin. As always, please take a moment to uh, uh, look for the evaluation forms. We do rely on your feedback to, uh, to craft our programs, and we thank you for that. To set the stage for today's discussion, I'm going to read a, a quick, quick excerpt from uh, The Leader magazine, which is Cornette's official publication. Uh, this goes back to the September issue by uh, Charlie Grantham and Jim Ware from uh, Work Design Collaboration, and I think it'll give you a sense of what we're talking about today. We are absolutely convinced that both corporations and communities are facing a workforce challenge that is completely unprecedented. The simple fact is the over, that over the next 10 years, the demand for talent, especially but not exclusively in the United States, will far outstrip the supply. In fact, a recent survey by Manpower, Inc. found that fully 40% of over 33,000 employers worldwide are already having difficulty filling critical positions. Perhaps even more sobering is the fact that for the next 30 years overall, pop, or the next 30 years overall population growth in the developed countries of the world, including the U.S., will be below the rate of projected economic growth. In fact, some forecasters have predicted that by 2012, there will be a demand for 10 million more workers than will be available here in the United States. So I guess the good news is we're in demand, but the reality is that this is a real challenge for, uh, for companies and, and, uh, and individuals and communities. So we've, we've put together a terrific panel of experts here today to address the, uh, the issues for us. Um, to my far right is Dr. Suzanne Cannon from uh, DePaul University, Associate Professor of Finance and the Douglas and Cynthia Crocker uh, Endowed Chair. Uh, sitting next to Dr. Cannon is um, uh, Jill Atkinson. She's Senior Consultant and Project Manager with uh, Hewitt Associates, and she'll talk to us from the human, so human resources and organizational perspective. And to my right is Mana Nevels, Vice President of Talent Systems of, for the Americas for Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, who will give us some perspective from the service provider uh, side of the, the equation. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's event. Dennis DeCamp is the Director of Global Workplace Services for Rockwell, Intermation, Rockwell Automation. Um, Rockwell Automation is a world leader in manufacturing automo automation products and client services with over $5 billion in annual revenues. His responsibilities include global real estate, facility and project management, and general services for Rockwell's assets in over 40 countries. Prior to joining Rockwell, Dennis was with the Xerox Corporation and held positions in finance, real estate, and strategic planning. Dennis has over 20 years of corporate real estate experience, uh, as well as facility management experience. He is a BOMA designee and a candidate for the Senior Leader of Corporate Real Estate Certificate Series of Cornet Global. Dennis, his wife Diane, son Jonathan, and daughter Amanda are residents of the Chicago area, and uh, I should also mention that Dennis is a very active member of our Chicago chapter and provides a great deal of, of insight and resources for us. So we're very delighted to have Dennis uh, leading this conversation. Dennis? Thank you, Brian. Is this thing working? Good. can never tell. Um, I'd like to go into a little bit more of an extension on the uh, bios of our panelists today. Uh, first of all, Suzanne, uh, she's authored a number of papers on a number of areas, corporate governance, real estate feasibility, eminent domain, etc. She's also the founding director of the Real Estate Center that has built an academic program starting in 2002 that has over 150 MBA, MSRE students, an equal number of undergraduate majors in only six years. 
Jill. Um, Jill has um, over eight years of experience working with clients on all aspects of organizational performance, including HR organization design and delivery, talent management, talent acquisition. Jill has extensive experience managing client projects in organizations going through all aspects of transformational change. And finally, Mana um, is uh, joined uh, Jones Lang LaSalle earlier this year as Vice President of Human Resources for the Bank of America account, very large account, um, with over 800 employees, results-driven professional, was responsible for developing and delivering a number of successful programs that drove measured improvements in the account's ability to attract and develop employees. Uh, also, I was informed that she created the HR um, Survivor Island um, program for, for management that was fashioned over the TV show. So I hope I did some good credit to that. Um, we, we certainly have some great uh, talent here, so we're going to break into some questions. Um, Brian, and I don't remember if you said it, but basically we're going to spend about the next 40 minutes going through some prepared questions and having some dialogue both from a provider standpoint, a talent standpoint, as well as a supplier standpoint. So I think this will be very interesting. We're going to open it up for about 10, 15 minutes of questions. So we would ask you if you have questions along the way, there's going to be a lot of good information that comes from this. Just kind of pen it down, if you will, and we'll come back to that towards the end of the program. Okay? Um, first question. From your perspective, what is the talent for demand and what skills and experience are expected from employers today? Um, all, all three of our panelists are, are ready to engage in this question. Okay. Um, Mana, do you want to take that one on first? Sure, I'll be glad to. Good afternoon. I think the good news is, is that clearly there is a demand for talent, as we've heard. And when we talk about skills and experience, we, we're thinking of that differently today. We are not looking for the typical skills and experiences that you may have previously thought. What we're looking for today are capabilities, capabilities that transcend specific jobs, capabilities that position us to deliver the highest level of client service. So skills and experience are becoming um, framed differently in the dialogue about the demand for talent. One of the challenges that we have, however, is that for those capabilities, we are finding shortages. And we are already feeling the demand outpace supply. And one of the uncontrovertible headwinds that we are currently dealing with is that the workforce is shrinking. So what we're finding is, is this intersection of shrinking supply and increasing demand with a focus on capabilities. So how we've traditionally thought about skills and experiences changing, the supply of talent out there that is available to us is shrinking, and the demand is increasing. Jill, you want to add to that? I think one thing that I would add um, in addition to that is that as we look in our consulting work across industries, that this is something that holds true um, far outside of real estate as well. So in addition to some of the things that she mentioned, there's the additional uh, challenge that you're competing against other industries for the same types of talent because as we move away from specific skills into broader capabilities, it, we hear a lot of clients talking about um, just understanding the capacity for learning. That has nothing to do with a specific skill in any particular industry, but um, every industry is competing for the absolute best and brightest, and we hear that all the time, except that it's actually true now. People are really trying to take... <laughs> Time. I know. No. <laughs> Gosh. 
gosh, I think I offended a hundred people. I'm sorry. Um, I think that employers are doing a better job, actually, of trying to assess learning capability out of the gate. So um, in the past, we may have looked for somebody with a specific set of skills for a specific role. Um, They're looking for that broader set of capabilities, but as people come in the door. So there's a lot more demand just at the entry gate to get the um, people with the best learning capability. So um, if... There's an industry that appears to be hotter than a different one. If there's an organization that appears to be hotter than a different one, um, employees in this generation are actually very interested in that, and they're not so industry-specific as maybe they had been in the past. Before we go to Suzanne, uh, just to follow up, are there certain skills that generally in the industry are transferable? Are there some strategies and practices to look for certain skills so that if you're in one vertical market you would say, look, in any case, this is what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Are there some specifics like that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, when you you think about transferable capabilities, you know, what we think about is we think about global awareness. We think about multicultural, multiculturalism. Um, We are seeing more of our M generation coming into the workforce today, bringing that with them. That's a very powerful competitive advantage that we're, we're learning to figure out how to tap into. The learning capability is very important. Being able to learn and adapt and be flexible in a very changing, dynamic business environment is important. Dealing with ambiguity is important. Jobs are not as structured as they used to be. Jobs are changing. We're increasingly working in a matrixed environment. We're increasingly managing employees that we don't see. The way we virtually work has fundamentally changed the way managers engage their employees. So to the extent that you can build those capabilities and bring those into the work environment, you are considered a very valuable part of the organization. Some of those things are very difficult to learn, as you can imagine. But some of them are trainable. Some of them are coachable. But those are just an example of of a capability set that I would say you'll be hearing more about, learning more about, and seeing increasingly valued in the workplace. Anything to add? Suzanne, you've now heard about that there's a demand situation here, right? And we've got some, we've got some issues about what do we do next in our industry. What are you seeing employers asking of you? What are you preparing new students for? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that we, you know, I'm on the supply side, and we're attempting to provide at two different levels. One, the undergraduate coming fresh out of school at 21 or 22, and then the other is the returning student who's coming back to get an MBA and perhaps finishing it up at age 30, having had several years of experience and work. So I, I sort of have two tracks. Um, at the undergraduate level, Uh, The position we take at DePaul, and I think it's common to a lot of universities, is that over half of the curriculum needs to be a generalist, liberal arts, traditional coursework. Um, This isn't a training ground. This is a place for people to spend four years in a structured setting uh, in spite of Thirsty Thursdays. Um, We'd like them to... (laughs) We'd, we'd like them to be in class uh, at least four days a week. And um, 
none of us have classes on Fridays anymore. But we, uh, what we want is we want to uh, have this next generation of workers emerge with a solid, uh, fundamental uh, liberal arts background that then gets focused in the last two years into uh, a business degree. And personally, as a mother and as a professor, um, I think that we should do more than less of that. And so when we created the real estate curriculum at DePaul, uh, when we got to the place where the students are doing the typical major, where they're doing seven courses in some discipline, we defined that to be four courses that were strictly real estate and three of them that could be things like urban history or architecture history or the you know, political science of the city or zoning or something that was real estate related but not focused. Now, I have to tell you that at the university level and in every school that I know of that has a real estate program housed in a business school and particularly if it's housed in a finance department, we are very focused on the acquisition decision. So we, we are working with students to get them to the place, uh, particularly in the MBA, but to some extent in the undergraduate as well, on this acquisition decision, not then the long-term management and maintenance and the sort of asset management, if you will. Um, there are some programs that are housed in planning schools or architecture schools, and they have a different perspective. But I think you need to understand when you talk to us in academia, most of us are bringing out our, our students through a finance framework, which uh, may or may not be appropriate, frankly. It, it is something that I think a number of us, and particularly at DePaul, I know we're taking a very serious look at. I would suspect if we were having this conversation five years ago, the expectation would be more tactical or project management driven or some, and, and what I'm hearing is a move from left brain to right brain to more broaden the, the opportunities and the knowledge of the students. Is that correct? I, I think that's fair. I, I did a sum up this uh, Monday night with my MBA, uh, introductory MBA class, and these are students, who, most of whom are in their late 20s, some of them are in their 30s, some of them actually come back when they're 50s, but uh, typically close to 30, and they've had six or eight years of experience, and uh, about two-thirds of them are somewhere in the real estate world, and we put them through this class that's an introductory um, investment and finance course. And as I said, I was summing up the end of the quarter, and I said, okay, here's what I meant you to do. I meant you to do some independent writing. I meant you to come to class and have to talk. I meant you to have to do an exam on your own. And now it's the end of the quarter, and I mean you to do um, – a team project that then you're going to have to debate in class. So the notion here is to provide a very much more rounded classroom experience than you might have 10 or 15 years ago, where it might very well have been much more content-oriented. And I don't think of the class that I'm teaching anymore as content. It's much more of a process and an, developing an analytical framework that you might find useful beyond the classroom. So I think that maybe has changed, certainly from when I was in school. Mana, specific to your, to your group, um, is there a change, a, a move afoot, that's requiring more on the service provider standpoint? Do you see jobs flowing from the corporate end user into that, either from a tactical, planning, strategic? And if so, 
what is that backfill at the corporate level expecting of a company like yours? Yes, we are seeing that. And I think what we're facing in terms of the U.S. economy clearly is a recession. And what that means to us is that corporations are looking differently at their portfolio in terms of real estate. So what they are asking of us as a provider is to provide that thought leadership, um, to take advantage of that seat at the table to guide the dialogue, to assist in real decision-making. And as we assume that kind of responsibility, it means that we approach our relationship very differently. That that seat at the table is earned and it is highly coveted. And when we think about our employees who are sitting at that table with our clients, what is it that they should be doing? What should they know? What kind of thought leadership should they be providing? And so as we, as we take a look at that relationship, we're thinking differently about how we manage it, how we cultivate it, what it means to us as a firm. And in align with that, what we're asking of our employees is something a little bit different than maybe we have at the past, in the past. Our clients are not necessarily asking for subject matter expertise. They expect that. That's the ticket for entry. It's that next step. It's where do we go from here? What do you recommend? What is your advice? What plan should we put into place today to plan for the future? And looking to us to be that proactive thought leader. So it really is changing the relationship and it's changing what our clients expect of us. And as that changes, obviously that changes who we look for to take these very significant responsibilities on board. It's occurring to me that it could sound like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth, that we ask for strategic, broad-based thinkers that are, you know, have a lot of learning capability. Mm -hmm. But then we do have to have all of the technical and specific professional knowledge. So in some ways, it's both. I mean, you have to be able to do both things. So if you've done one thing very narrowly for 20 it. years, yeah, uh, you're not going to be successful. If you're a really broad thinker but actually can't get the content background right, you're yeah. not going to be successful. Yeah either. You have to do both. Yeah, and the content background is expected to be there. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the ticket for entry. So the bar is going up, as we like to say. And so recruiting depends on what level of the organization you're talking about. As it you does. get more senior, you, have, you need both roles. There's no question. And, and when we, we think about recruiting and we think about recruiting the type of talent that earns that seat at the table and guides that, that, that thinking and, and that proactive relationship, 95% of companies today are still operating under the old model of recruitment. And the old model of recruitment is what? Well, it is we are going to put our job out on the job board, and we are going to hope that you come and find us. It's the old you find us way of recruiting. And 95% of companies are using that today. With a shrinking workforce, the demands increasing, that model no longer works. So what we've done is we've said we are, we are abandoning that over time. We are transitioning to a recruitment model that says we will find you. We will find you. So what does that mean? That means that we're proactive in the recruiting market. It, it has a connotation of a relationship-based approach, 
much like our CRMs have with our clients, we're going to start building those kind of relationships with applicants and candidates. Because we're looking at capabilities, as we, as we said earlier, that means that we have broadened our scope in terms of what we're looking for. So when we go out to find you, that's a different mindset that, that we have today as opposed to waiting and hoping that you're going to find us. So I didn't want to let that pass without, without pointing that out because I think that's an important change. Jill, if I could, uh, using your industry, uh, somewhat similar to real estate, but if you just take Hewitt, and, and you have seen a move from in-house deployment moving over your way, which is, has made you successful. When you look back to the company that you're supporting, what is it that you're looking for them to maintain, to hold, to be responsible for in order for you and them to be successful? And I think there might be some interesting parallels there. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Hewitt does do a lot of outsourcing work, and when we look back at our clients, um, I think what we're looking for is that we need them to continue to hold the strategic vision of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, we're sort of both jointly accountable for cost. I think on, on the Hewitt side, we're also responsible for providing the innovation and the new ideas and the things that work across sets of companies that don't maybe pop up within any one specific organization. Um, and clearly on the Hewitt side, we completely own the day-to-day -day operational capability of getting it done on top of that. Suzanne, uh, you prepare and understand your practices within finance today. Is that correct? It is. Okay. As you hear the, the sides of there's, there are service providers out there which historically may have been a more of tactical deployment, and then you're, we're hearing about there's a shift, but now we're still preparing individuals for a real estate career. Mm -hmm. Do you just focus and touch base with the user community or the end user, or do you have links into service providers? For example, Jones Lang, LaSalle, CB, etc., that seem to be in more demand, continuing demand, having trouble finding and attracting talent. Do you open that door to your students to, to, to see both of it, or... Is it more generic than that? We, well, it, it, it's, we do try. And I think um, I pulled together some numbers. I'll just give you an idea. Uh, so over the transom last year, 10,000 uh, jobs were posted at DePaul, which is an amazing number to me. Um, but I think that many of those are not really necessarily aimed at fresh undergraduates and some of them are secretarial or administrative positions, and some of them are senior management, so there's a, all over. But just in real estate, over the transom, we only had 75 jobs posted. And um, this year, um, Steve Bell from C.B. Richard Ellis joined us full-time and is teaching for us and running our mentoring and internship and placement program, and we are doing uh, some serious reaching out to find you, as a matter of fact. Uh, and to find all of you, because we think that the program is only as good as its placement. So we're trying to figure out ways that we can work with the folks in industry. Uh, one of the things we've done is develop a mentoring program. We've got 30 people in it this year, and that means that there are 30 students who have someone out in industry who has agreed to take them to lunch four times and spend a couple of hours each time with them uh, once a month, from January to May, and I think that's a 
you know, a, a much more meaningful connection. And what we're finding is that these mentors are opening doors for them. So that's one approach that we take. And another approach that we take is to reach out to try to find internships. And by the way, I am very short on summer internships this summer, so I brought lots of cards if you think you can take somebody. Well, it sounds like um, there's a linkage. Mana, there is a linkage. Mana, a really you need strong people. Link. You see, Suzanne's and, got them. But let me just tell you one more thing that's very discouraging. And, and you mentioned this, we're going to have a recession. Let me tell you what we've seen. We had, um, since Steve joined us in September, We've had 30 very good real estate, strong positions, you know, analyst positions, which is really what we're producing, people who are junior analysts. And uh, in one way or another, virtually every one of those has been pulled back. Um, in one week, we had four postings made and pulled. In, and that means that these are firms that are saying, oh, we've changed our mind. Not that we're pulling out entirely. But let me tell you, it's very unnerving for us right now to be in that situation. Not to belabor this, but are, were those postings from companies, corporations, as opposed to service providers? Yes. Okay. Yes, they were. Man, in one sentence, is the service provider industry pay well? Yes. Good. <laughs> um, the success of a moderator is to have one-sentence questions. <laughs> <coughs> Questions, not answers, questions. But, but this one, unfortunately, we couldn't break down, but uh, we, we had some time on the phone. But, but we hear the multi-generational, multicultural workforce is becoming a factor in the supply-demand environment. Mm -hmm. Further, eco-boomers and next-geners. Now, neither one of those I, I heard until this week. This was just great. <laughs> but they're now finishing college and are equal to the number of baby boomer population. So for us getting ready to be about there, there's a whole set of people behind us. But they have, may have a different focus, those people coming up. We've talked about uh, uh, Wall Street. We've talked about development, community, whatever. Um, Jill, talk about the, this multi-generation. What does this group look like? Is it, is it really different, and is it something we have to cope with? Yes and yes. <laughs> Do I have to say more? <laughs> is, that, is that my one? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, they are actually uh, different. They're more global. They're more technology-connected. They're more interested in networks. They're more interested in learning and development opportunities. Um, they are actually interested in loyalty to an organization, but they're not going to give it to you the way that maybe prior generations did in terms of sort of the norms of the day. Um, but they don't really want to jump around from company to company if they don't have to. Um, but the way to keep them is to be able to provide the right opportunities for them. They have very high expectations about how quickly they can move and gain experiences. So if you hand them a little career path that says it's going to take you 10 years to get from here to there, you might as well just say goodbye to them right then because 10 years is a long time in their world. Um, it needs to look a lot. It may not need to be shorter, but it needs to look shorter, and there needs to be some progressive opportunities along the way. Um, so in a lot of ways, they are different, and we do need to work with them in a different way than we have in the past. Yeah, if I could just add to that, Ernst & Young's last big new employee orientation for the MGen generation. I'll set the scene for you. They had about 150 employees, new hires, coming, coming into the room. And on the screen, they had this big message. Hello, W-U question mark. Anybody want to guess? W-U? 
what's up? What's up? <laughs> and so what, what companies are doing is they are reaching into their toolbox of innovative, creative ideas to engage this, this group of employees because their demand is different. Their value proposition is different. And companies are completely reevaluating how they attract and retain this amazing group coming into the organization. It's fascinating what companies are doing. And when we think about development, we can no longer think about development in the traditional way. First you're in this job, and then you're in this job, and now you're in this job. And, and, and us baby boomers may have been patient to kind of work through that. But as Jill pointed out, this generation is not. They have just successfully completed one of the most competitive college application processes in history. They've paid their dues. But the challenge is they don't know necessarily how to get to work by 8 o'clock. <laughs> right? Am only, I right? And they only work four days a week. That, so, <laughs> and their parents told them they were great anyway. And their parents told them they were great. They were all honor students. That's right. They were all honor students. So, so what, that, what that means is that we are finding that our baby boomers and our traditionalists are becoming great mentors and great teachers for this generation. How do you, how do you conduct yourself at a business lunch? Which side of the plate is the bread plate on, and when do I put my napkin in my lap? Those kinds of things. But what I love about this generation is they are so hungry, no pun intended, for that kind of mentoring and that kind of engagement. They can't get enough of it. But it has to be in very short snippets. Chunk it out. <laughs> Chunk it out. Exactly. There's, I mean, the, the thing is... Um, they also don't know an awful lot. They haven't read much. They have short attention spans. Uh, I have this, you know, I've been teaching a long time, and I have this little line that I always do when I'm trying to talk early in the quarter about um, understanding sort of the legal framework. And um, I, I've always <coughs> relied on being able to talk about um, Pride and Prejudice being a real estate novel because it is, after all, all about property being entailed and the reason that the dreadful Mr. Collins is going to get the property is that it can't go to any of the five girls. Well, I can't tell that story anymore because they don't know about Jane Austen. They certainly, they might, a few of the girls might have seen the movie, but uh, nobody else. So, you know, there's a real serious problem with attention span, with uh, assuming that they have the general body of knowledge of literature that we thought that they might have. Uh, we're doing a number of things in the classroom uh, very few of us are lecturing anymore. Um, the sage on the stage sort of thing has to go away. You have to figure out ways to make the class interactive. I think it's better learning, and it probably always was. We just didn't know about it, and now we really do. Because they'll get up and leave and go get a cup of coffee. You know? <laughs> I don't imagine most of us in this room did that, but, uh, but they will. And um, uh, we are doing a lot of things to try to figure out ways to ensure the learning and then to assure that and evaluate that they got it. 
Uh, we're doing some things. Do you all know about clickers, for example? We have these clickers that you can, uh, the students can take into class, and the professor can, either on the fly or having done it in advance, say, okay, I've given this lecture, and if you all had the clickers, I could say, and what was the novel that I referred to just a moment ago? And up would come a series of things on the screen, and they could click A, B, C, D, up comes the answer. We can see how many got it right. We can see the distribution. I can then tell whether I have to tell that story over again. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that we're doing. And I expect you're doing that in the workplace, that you're finding that people have very similar uh, issues in the workplace. Yeah, corporate learning and development has really gone away from the formal training program and really into much uh, stronger sets of experiential learning. Mm-hmm. And Formal training is like the last resort of some, I've got to get across some huge amount of information quickly, and I don't care about it that much. But anything that actually is worth learning and doing is all done in an experiential setting now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just a, just a last comment on that is this is the first time that we've had four generations working side by side. That presents obviously a lot of opportunities, but a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. So I would say accept it. Take advantage of it. Figure out how to make those connections for your employees. As we talked about the MGENs, they want to learn. They, they want to be successful. And to the extent that you can pair them with that traditionalist or boomer in a, in a mentoring kind of relationship, it will work. It's very effective. That was great. <laughs> that was just, well, I mean, what I was sitting back thinking, and you started to answer it, was, is that not setting up a conflict as we've condensed generations? You may have, I'm not sure what two steps down from a baby generation is, but, but there is a generation there that are, that are pragmatic, that are the probably still 55-hour-a-week people, mm-hmm. uh, organized, deliberate, and now the income, incoming is, is more, uh, okay, tell me what to do and I'll get the results done. I mean, how do you, how do you see that? I mean... Monday from an organization standpoint, Jill, you know, you're, you're helping your clients. How do you, how do you bridge that? I yeah. mean, that sounds different. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the, the entire chain, if you will, of, you know, when a person comes on board and, and when they, they finally leave an organization, each step of that process, as it relates to managers and employees giving each other feedback, all of those things are different now because of these four generations working side by side. So... If you've ever seen the movie In Good Company, have you seen that movie where Dennis Quaid is in, he's a baby boomer and he, he gets a 26-year-old boss and, and they go through that, uh, that forming, norming, you know, storming kind of phase. And we see that. We see our managers drawing conclusions about the MGen generation that um, lead us to believe that maybe they don't understand that generation that well. That they're, um, they don't want to work. They want everything handed to them. And there's a whole series of negatives. And we're finding that that's not true. It's absolutely not true. What our challenge is as employers and, and leaders in the organization is to figure out how to tap into that potential. Because what they bring to us is something that we've never had before. So we have to look at all of our people processes to make sure that we're equipping our managers and our employees to work together to build a strong relationship. So development, management training, all of those things have taken a different tone and a different focus because of these generational implications in the workplace. Did that answer? Did that help? Mm-hmm. 
Jill? Jill? Hewitt did a Top Companies for Leaders study that was in the October 1st edition of Fortune magazine, and I was fortunate enough to conduct the interviews with several senior leaders in the Fortune, maybe 50 to 100 companies, um, to ask them questions about how they develop leaders within their own organizations. And one thing that was interesting to hear them talk about was this next generation. And that was not a question in my interview guide. It just came up naturally in almost every single interview. And the first, que- and the first thing they would say is, how does everybody else deal with these people? <laughs> it was like their one chance to ask somebody that wasn't affiliated with their organization about what to do. And these were some pretty senior people <laughs> that were wondering about it. But uh, I do think that there are organizations that are trying this mentoring thing that you're talking about. Um, and what they're finding is that one thing that boomers like to do is make sure that they're sharing their knowledge so that this legacy that they've built kind of continues after they leave. And if you can frame things sort of in that light, sometimes people that otherwise are struggling to understand how to deal with these people have suddenly found a way to talk to them um, and then get to know them as a person. And then not that this other stuff goes away. I've actually found that in a lot of organizations where we've tried to pull HR back in some ways from the manager-employee relationship, I'm finding that HR is starting to get more involved again. And not from a personnel administrative management perspective, but more from a coaching perspective of how do we broker this relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's been very effective um, when you do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, does that, does that come up in your world where that, that coaching idea, the tagging on, you mentioned having lunches with particular mentors, mm-hmm. but, but is, that a, is that a barrier that you guys see or is it just an additional service that as a, a university you try to provide for your students? No, I don't think it's a barrier. I think what we've tried to do is take our 40 or so sponsors, all of whom give us money but also time, and engage them with our students. We've, you know, we do networking receptions. We do, as a matter of fact, um, uh, an etiquette dinner and a dressing for the interview and dressing for the workplace kind of thing. Uh, not in the classroom, but you know, as a, as an act, activity a late afternoon activity. We do a lot of those things to give our students a bit of polish, but we do work very hard on figuring out ways that our students can meet uh, mid- to senior-level professionals uh, while they're students and draw on their skills. I I think it's very important. Okay. The next question is a little bit more open, and it's talking about career path. And, And we could be specific to the career path of a real estate professional Whatever, but as we look at the programs within side of either what we supply or demand, how do intern programs affect that? How does what is actually wanted? Is there acceptance resistance to relocating good talent? Uh, are there different kind of benefits being asked for today than there might have been three or four years ago? I can tell you on my student side, you know, the typical undergraduate from DePaul goes out for $49,000, probably doesn't have a signing bonus. Uh, That's probably the entry-level salary. Um, The the best positions are those where students have had one or more internships, where they um, have had some work experience that's related to the field, although I'm quick to say that I don't dismiss flipping burgers because it does mean that they had to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and show up someplace, and it really does matter. So, you know, I'm not dismissive of that, but I do think that the best placements for our students come, and for the, from the employer's perspective, come when they've had a chance to see each other. You know, it's very difficult to figure people out in an interview 
but you have them work for you for a couple of weeks and you've got it. So, you know, an interview is sort of a cheap date. I, I mean, an, in, an uh, internship is in a way. So that's one of the things we think is the best way for our students to get a path in. And then um, I, I don't know as much as I probably should about the later stages. I do see my MBAs coming back many times um, Many times they can't or won't get placed out of their MBA because they're being reimbursed at least partially from their employers. And so sometimes it's a few years later that they come back. And so I see them kind of mid-career. And many times I see people who want to make a career shift out of one area of real estate and into another and have in some sense used the MBA as a purification process to, you know, show that they could develop in a different direction. Just to clarify that, mm-hmm. too, so you mentioned the, the second group is mm-hmm. getting the towards the 30s. They've come back in. They want to take that particular path. Mm-hmm. Are they open to internships as a, as a way into a field as well? Only the full-time. And I get a handful of those every year, 8, 10, something like that, who want to do a summer internship because they've decided to come to school full-time. We're a, a night school program. But we have two different ways that students can do a full-time program. One is just to do it full-time at night. And the other is we have a small cohort that comes every fall, and they do uh, – there are 35 or so of them. And they do um, all their core classes in the daytime. And when they finish their core classes, then they move over into their major. So both of those groups need a summer internship. And we've had pretty good luck placing those folks. I think I mentioned to you when we were talking on the phone, however, that the biggest problem I have with my students uh, in terms of uh, once they get interested in a position is I can't get them to leave Chicago. You know, they just, nobody wants to leave. And so we get job openings that get posted with us from time to time, and I rarely can get anybody to go uh, interview for those. It's part of that. They've made up their mind where they want to be, and that's it. Jill Hewitt uh, understands the the importance of getting the right candidate and, and the way you reach out. F- from a company standpoint and, and more specific to the practice, what are the what are the genies in the bottles that you folks use that have been successful and, and along with retention? Um, from, a, from a recruiting standpoint, mm-hmm. what do we do? Um, well, we've seen a lot of our clients go to, and we do a little bit of this ourselves. I mean, you see sort of this behavioral interviewing so that you can kind of get a sense from an experience's perspective of what the person has gone through. But more organizations are putting even candidates through what we call an assessment center where they're going through maybe a half day's worth of activities. There's things like inbox exercises where you give them a bunch of stuff and they've got to prioritize to figure out which things are more important to deal with when and why. Um, one-on-one discussions, you'd be telling your manager with an employee and see how they perform in that kind of environment. So every assessment center is set up specific to the maybe jobs and the type of setting that you're involved in, but we've been surprised to see the number of companies who are doing that as people are coming in the door. Um, That has been typical in the past in leadership positions, and it's often used in development situations once you're in the company, but um, to see it so widespread at uh, broad levels of the organization from an acquisition perspective is really interesting. Um, on the retention side, uh, one of the tools that Hewitt just recently developed that's been very, I have to say it's a little scary, but very interesting, is um, we have a set of predictive analytics that can look at a company's set of employees and predict who is going to leave within the next 12 months. 
um, it uses a very similar methodology to a credit risk score, and so every employee receives a separate individual sort of retention risk score. Um, like, it's a little scary, that's what I'm telling you. It's, it's very accurate. <laughs> um, and it's been very helpful to organizations, not only, I mean, knowing individually who may leave is very helpful and powerful, but the other part of it that's interesting is that it then also provides some of the characteristics of those populations of people who might be more inclined to leave. And so when you're thinking about retention, a lot of companies sort of try these big peanut butter solutions or they try to throw money at people, but understanding who you actually might lose and the characteristics of the populations of people that you might lose actually might lead you down the path to a different solution. And one of the things I think that we're seeing a little bit of and everyone's worried about as we get into this war for talent as the demographics start to shift is that a lot of companies will use money and compensation as sort of the first tool in the battle to keep talent, but no company can keep that up forever. And so you've got to think about what's the next thing I'm going to do. And if you can sort of figure out what the population that's at most at risk of leaving really wants, it might not actually be money. So and we're finding that that is very useful to people too. You had yeah. gone through it, gone through a, a change in the last two or three years. One of the, the major number of benefits that as a company you did was I think you got to them through their stomachs, right? Uh, and, and, that, and that has a slight change to it. Did, did, did you see that? Did that result in a takeaway, or was it like, yeah, we understand it, and there's other benefits that, that the company provides? Uh, it, well, at Hewitt, so in the last seven or eight years, we've gone public. Um, we've, we were a privately held partnership, and now we're a public company. Um, and we went through a lot of shifts between the two sides of our business. One is outsourcing. The other side is consulting. And so we did struggle with some retention issues along the way. We didn't have this powerful tool that we had just implemented at Hewitt in the last month. Um, too bad. It's, it maybe would have been helpful to us a few years ago. But um, I think... It also depends a lot on the culture of the organization that you're working with. So you have to think about that, too. And for Hewitt in particular, there is a very strong culture of loyalty. There are a lot of people who have been there a very long time and have very deep client relationships and are unlikely to leave. But we did lose some people that I think we hoped that we had not. Um, and we struggled with the uh, money, the compensation side of the retention issue, because we went public and our stock kind of sat for a little while, but it's doing much better now. But when we first went public, it sat for a long time, and so it was hard to convince people uh, that it was worth staying. Um, but there were, like I said, there were a lot of people that cared a lot, cared very deeply about their client relationships and the work that they do, and had a lot of loyalty to the organization too. So the message helped. isn't necessarily compensation; it, it's the place I work. It's very often not compensation. I will say, um, Hewitt did a study last year. Um, we interviewed high potentials across a number of organizations in the Fortune 100 and looked to see what motivated them and if it was any different than what we knew about what motivates employees in general. And there were some differences, and one of them was compensation. So among a high potential group of employees, compensation was in the top three. With other employees, it doesn't usually make the top five. And it's not that it doesn't matter. It's just usually not in the top five job opportunities, uh, work-life balance, um, the quality of the work that I do. There's other things that actually matter more. Among high potentials, compensation does come up more often, and I think they have a greater awareness of what the global marketplace for talent looks like right now. 
so it makes a difference to them. But it's still not number one, and you still can't throw money at them and make them stay if they can find a better opportunity somewhere else. Mana, do you agree? Yeah, actually, yes, I do agree. I think when we look at retention programs or we look at who in the organization we want to retain, it's very important to have the right optics around that. Because as we become leaner, as we become, um, as, as the war for talent continues to rage, we look at our workforce differently today. Their value proposition is different than it was in the past. We just talked about our MGen generation. That generation was the only generation to pull fun in the top five things that they value at work. Compensation didn't make the list that I saw at all. But what did make the list and what is always on the list is the manager-employee relationship. That is the nucleus and the heartbeat of the organization. So when you think about engagement and you think about retention, it lives and breathes at a very personal level between a manager and his or her people. And as we move more toward a recession, we know some of the outcomes from that. And more and more importance will be placed on that relationship, how you nurture it, how you, how you keep it fueled, right, on a regular basis. Because when employees feel disconnected from their manager, they don't see the relationship between their work and the goals of the organization. They become disenfranchised and unengaged. And I had an opportunity to hear Kurt Kaufman recently, who is a co-author of First Break All the Rules, and he's about to launch his next big um, work that will be published soon. And, and part of that work will be how you engage a team. And he, he distilled it all down, and he said it comes down to the manager and the employee and the relationship, that there's nothing more critical than that. So on the cover of Fortune a few years ago, there was a, a big banner headline that, that basically said, it's the manager, stupid. And um, in, in Kurt Kaufman's presentation that I had a chance to hear, he said, it's still the manager, stupid. So when you think about where you're going to spend your retention dollars and your development focus, if you, if you have the, op the right optics around that and you zero in on that relationship and you invest in it, it will pay big dividends in the future. With our excellent panelists, we'd like to open it up for questions. Uh, we've certainly got a, a depth of experience and, and from the supply as well as the demand side. Questions from the audience? I'm with a small economic development group, and we have a small staff of about four or five people. And we have about at least three and a half generations. Do you find parenting to be a key element in the management. It's just, we have a couple of 20-somethings, and it seems, even though they're very bright people, it seems like parenting skills. <laughs> if you want to comment on that, you have to give a lot more leniency and guidelines than you would for us boomers. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll take a crack at that maybe. But, but yeah, I think, I think when, you, when you think about that generation, I think, yeah, you would probably call upon some parenting skills. Um, but I think you have to be a little bit careful, right, because, because that relationship is different, uh, obviously, from that of a parent. And I think, especially when you have a small team like that, um, that's when you, you, you know, your team environment and your work environment and all those things play into it. And if you have a need for uh, planning events or, or social activities or things like that, let your MGen lead those. 
remember they're fun in the top five. So there are ways to kind of capture their imagination and, and spirit. But I would try to get away from more of the parent and, and maybe take on more of a role of a coach and teacher. That's the same thing, yeah. yeah. Okay. Another question. Next. Since we have a lot of students here, I was wondering if you could speak to them about what are the hot areas within real estate that are in demand right now? Like I'm hearing a lot about CRM, for example, being an emerging area. Yeah. So, um, in terms of what's in demand right now, there, you know, we're we're seeing demand in in project management, for sure. Um, that str- that is one of our key talent streams. Um, we'll continue, I think, to see demand there. We're also seeing demand in the finance area. The finance director category of of talent is another one of our key talent streams, as well as the the, the CRM role, and. Um, those are our, our big three right now. If you think about other types of um, opportunities and, and facilities and property management, those are still available as well. So those are all growth areas for us. And we've actually identified them as being talent streams, meaning that they are the, the swim lanes for the organization. So we are investing in those talent streams. We're actively recruiting in those talent streams. Um, we're utilizing our retention efforts on those streams, getting the right optics around that. So those are our key areas. Just to add to that, too, there's not this fine division of a, there's this corporate group and they have their building and here's a service provider, they have their building. There is a move, there has been for some time, of placement of your employees at customers' locations. So there's, there's a, a tighter interface to allow for CRM tactics to occur. That's right. Right. Next. I'm just curious. The, we keep talking about the, uh, the the differences in the generations. Will the younger generations acquire the characteristics of the older generations as they age? I, I, mean, I think certain things are somewhat age-related. Right. I don't know the answer. Uh, maybe. <laughs> First of all, do we have... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think they'll... As they acquire more perspective and experience, I think maybe some of the, some of their traits will will mellow maybe a little bit. And after a few years of getting to work at eight o'clock, that that might become slightly more ingrained than it is right now. Um, but their interest in networks and learning from other people, some of those characteristics, the interest in opportunity, I don't know that I see that going away. And the the more global and complex nature of some of the things that we're trying to manage these days will require that they stay that way. So, Brian, were you kind of hoping that the younger generation would change to the way we are? Or, or just the opposite? <laughs> <laughs> Next, question up here. I had a question for Dr. Kim. It's off this subject a little bit, but you had mentioned that you know, the kids coming in at you know, 18 or whatever, um, they're, they're, not, you know, they're, they're not readers. Um, are we do should we be doing something different at prior to kids getting to college? Any professor that I know would say yes. Well, there are a lot of things. I think there's been uh, this is me personally. I think there's been um, far too much attention given to making sure that there are computers in the classroom and far too little attention given to making sure that people have some sort of common body of knowledge and literature. And um, 
you know, I've, I've got grandkids now, and I'm beginning to watch what's going on there. And um, I, I, I don't think, for the most part, what's happening in the public school system is uh, working very well. So we we get kids who are smart kids, but are not as informed as I think they ought to be. Yeah, one of, one of the gaps that that we're seeing is in writing skills and presentation skills because the of the reliance on technology to communicate that has had a direct impact on some of our ability to to take for granted those that ticket for entry that we used to be able to sort of take for granted we relied on the public schools to teach writing presentation skills communication skills things like that and those demands are not being met today. So that's creating challenges for employers. So we're finding that as it relates to communication, we have to spend a lot more of our time and a lot more of our development focus on some of those fundamentals. Great question. You know, writing an email is not the same thing as writing an essay. And um, it is really true that, um, and I find this um, even up in the graduate students, um, really not the familiarity that I expect them to have with paragraph structure and with understanding how one idea flows to another idea um, and the way that you might um, write to a conclusion and something. I, um, and I think any of the faculty members that I lunch with at school would join me in that, in that assessment. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, we focus a lot on the younger generation. So what about the over-the-hill game? <laughs> you know, what, how do they, everybody would presume that they're going to have the senior management positions, but can they be recruited for, you know, other jobs as they transition from maybe, you know, as corporations downsize and, and uh you know, what, what, what are their prospects for getting the, the same job and competing with the younger generation? I, I actually think the prospects are pretty good because the, there's a gap there right now between the experience that the younger generation has and what the generation that's closer to retirement has. And so I think there is an opportunity for people to move if they're interested in moving. Um, there's also a lot of opportunity for people to not totally retire. So this like idea of phased or semi-retirement where you can work on a project basis or a part-time basis or kind of jump from organization to organization to do things, I think is really growing because there's, there's just this gap right now between what that generation knows and what the next couple generations behind them need to know but don't know yet. And I, we've seen a lot of companies, um, both on the – we do talent consulting where we talk about retention strategies, but we also do a lot of work in benefits consulting, and we've seen a lot of work in redesign going into some benefits programs, both on the retirement and even on the health side, to try to make it possible for older generations to stay in the workforce longer because they're not – a lot of companies haven't built the pipeline that they needed to, and they're not ready for those people to leave yet. Could, could there be a supply-demand geographic problem, too? You have experienced people in one part of the company, but the growing parts that are in need of it, and going back to that, I won't relocate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we do see that, and I, I know that there was a time when, and I'm sure 
many of you here can re- can recall the time when your company offered you a transfer and you said no, how that was perceived. There was a time when that was considered to be career limiting. And that's shifted. That shifted today. And I think that's the good shift. I think it's the right shift. Um, I think when we think about mobility, we look at it a little bit differently than we used to. And the value and the premium that we used to place on that has changed. The expectations of organizations with respect to employees being willing to pull up and move at the drop of a hat, that's, that's changing. And I think it's a good change. I think it's the right change. And I think we'll continue to look at that kind of dynamic as the workforce shrinks, as the war for talent continues to rage, as the next generation coming into the workplace demands more flexibility, more autonomy. So I'm looking for that to continue to change. One thing that's actually interesting as I think about that is that these really experienced employees who might be empty nesters and have kids out of the house in some ways are uh, maybe not more willing to move but are actually more mobile. And this is a little anecdotal in nature, but I have to say I've seen an awful lot of people at different clients who maybe could have just worked their last five years and retired and been very happy, have taken on new assignments and moved to do it because they can and they're interested and their company really needs them to. So you're, those employees are more in the driver's seat and have the opportunity to do that if they like and they don't have to. I mean, they, but they can. They can, and, empl- and employers are often looking for that, especially um, if you're expanding a part of the business globally. Um, it's true nationally, too, but especially globally. Finding a really experienced, knowledgeable manager in some of the big growing parts of the world is a little bit challenging right now. And so if you've got experienced employees who are willing to go try out living in another country or another continent for a couple of years, that's very valuable. There's a question at that table? Sure. You hit on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate on some of the incentives, particularly for younger people, uh, other than money, uh, that, that you're finding to be successful. Is it working from home? Is it a foosball table in the office? You know? Yes, foosball, for sure. Um, (laughs) Actually, we're doing a project right now. Um, Hewitt is partnering with Starbucks to work with one of their clients to redefine what the workspace looks like of the future. Um, And part of it is around the nature that more and more employees um, are interested in being virtual um, and the fact that some of the best talent might be available not in the locations where this particular client is located right now. Um, So we're thinking a lot about that in terms of how do you create a collaborative, innovative, team-like environment when there are not very many people all sitting in the same set of cubicles. So they are thinking about that a lot. Um, The other part that I think we have touched on a couple times but just keeps coming back to it is the idea of being able to provide the right opportunities to people. Um, The idea of the more traditional career path, I think, in some ways is going away in favor of things like experience maps. So when you're thinking about what you want a mid to senior level manager to be able to do and know in an organization, the way that they get there may not be up through a functional ladder, a series of deeper and maybe broader experiences, but in a fairly um, narrow realm. So we're seeing a lot more uh, development of experience mapping and then the ability to communicate, to your point about the manager-employee relationship, giving the managers the opportunity and in some ways, the authority to be able to promise these things to people. That's been a challenge in the past. There's like some 
seeker keeper of the of the career path, and you can never find them. Um, and so trying to find it actually a, a way that makes it possible for managers to have those conversations and own that relationship um, are things that we see more organizations doing. Um, but maybe you can address the issue of fun in the workplace too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of, one of the things that our MGen generation has brought to us is this idea of online learning communities and learning in a way that's new and different and fresh and they bring the technology savvy, they bring the creativity, and they're talking to us about how to do this. And we have a very successful intern and analyst program, and I know that many of you in, in a shrinking economy might be tempted to, to, to maybe put the brakes on some of those programs. And I couldn't encourage you more to do the opposite because those programs represent a way to continue to further your brand, to invest in this next generation, and to tap into the, the, the wealth of, of creativity that they bring. And one of the things we're seeing are things like virtual career fairs, online learning communities, development programs that are, that are based on the experiences that the employee wants to gain as opposed to a check-the-box so much time per function or in a, in a specific department. And they've driven that and they've brought that to us, and so we're rethinking some of those types of programs as a result of that. Question? Uh, yeah, I was uh, intrigued by your uh, comment about the system that could be used to uh, actually predict whether or not uh, they stay, and I know you described it as, as, as potentially scary. Um, curiously, or curious, did you develop that internally, or was that an external thing, and are there other programs that are similar? And just in general, what are your thoughts on that being kind of a slippery slope? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let me start from the easy question. We did partner with an outside firm to do that. Um, we, I wish I could remember their name off the top of my head. Um, but it's a firm that does a lot of the predictive analytics in the credit industry so that we could understand that modeling better. Um, but we have the data from the perspective that we um, – maintain data records for 20 million employees. So we have a lot of employee data that we can use to sort of test these processes. Um, and Hewitt had put together its own set of human capital foresight analytics in the past where we could predict the, the pivotal employees in the organization and be able to understand if you were retaining and attracting them at higher levels or lower levels than other companies in your industry. So we had our own sort of history in that area. Um, yeah, it's a little scary. Um, I think one of the things that we've been really careful about in the development process is to make sure that um, we're very, very well covered and have done our due diligence on privacy issues so that um, information that, is, that shouldn't be shared with other parties is not shared with other parties. Um, the idea that your employer could have an individual risk score on you in terms of turnover I think is a little bit scary to the employee, but um, in the in the context of the war for talent, it's, I don't think that it's something that we would recommend people use and say, well, let's just get rid of those people first just to save ourselves some time. It's, it's more on the other side that you mirror that up to the people who are your highest performers and highest potential employees in the organization, and it's giving you the data that you need on the other side to hang on to those people. There's, like, there's a general benchmark that says that when you have to replace somebody, it costs you one and a half times their base salary just to replace them. So if you're in an industry that's having experiencing turnover upwards of 30%, that gets expensive really quickly. 
So I look at this more from the standpoint of this is how we reduce those costs significantly and return that money to the bottom line instead of um, throwing it back into recruiting efforts. And then, then just as a follow-up, or actually part of it, are there other programs that are like that? Sorry, I that. No, that, I'll pay you later for letting me say that out loud. Um, no, this is actually the only analytic tool that we know that can predict it at that level. Rebecca? Yes, hello. Um, my name is Asia Fowler, and I'm here with Roosevelt University. And I was wondering, how can you tell a student or a potential employee's capability to learn based on their resume? Or can you only obtain that from the interview? Because I know that I have skills that would be an asset to any firm. I recently finished law school, took the bar exam, and I'm in the MBA program at Roosevelt at night. However, I'm having trouble finding those entry-level positions. And when you were speaking about writing, I'm like, okay, writing skills are not a problem for me. However, in the event you don't recruit at schools such as Roosevelt, how can I be afforded the opportunity to speak face-to-face -face with someone versus applying online, where sometimes that's not always <laughs> Wow, let's talk. <laughs> I promise a face-to-face. -face. <laughs> um, but no, I think, I mean, you're obviously asking a very important question, and that is, how do we sort of, you know, migrate from the, the resume to the capabilities that someone brings to the workplace and brings to the organization? And what, what we like to do is we, we have recently piloted a program called Top Grading, and many of you have maybe heard of it, a very successful pilot on our Bank of America account, and it's a program that, that was first launched at GE, and, and we know what a prolific talent machine GE continues to be. But that program really takes into account what someone brings to the organization in terms of capabilities beyond the, the typical job description and skill set. So where we like to start in that recruitment process is to build what we call a job scorecard. And in terms of that job scorecard, what are the accountabilities that a person will need to deliver? What are the outcomes they need to deliver once they're in the role? And when you start with that, that then frames your search in a new way. So it broadens it. It expands it. We actually saw an increase of 25% in our diversity in female hires once we adopted top grading because that, that initial focus was different. So that's just one of the examples, one of the things that we do. Again, I mentioned our intern and analyst programs. Uh, we work with universities on both of those programs. They're very successful. And I think as we learn to get more rigorous, more fact-based, learn to measure our quality of hiring, learn to do some of those kinds of things, in addition to expanding our pool and fishing in new ponds, using that we find you, then hopefully we will find someone just like you. More questions? We questioned out. Excellent. We'd like to close with each of our panelists giving us insight based on experience, based on the topic we got, but with the depth of experience and the diversity, we'd like to have a few minutes on each of those topics. So, Suzanne, you want to kick it off? No. Okay. We'll go. 
<laughs> no, I could – let me just say uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure being here. And um, I do think we're doing a lot of things right. Um, but one of the things that we want to do better is to, uh, is to reach out into the community. Uh, I mentioned that we have um, – we know that we have an acquisitions focus. And so one of the things that we've started to work on is what we've, we've started to call a capstone course – which would be a way of pulling together a lot of things into a kind of an asset management approach, I think. I'm not sure that it's exactly the direction that you in this audience want us to go. So if you have some thoughts about the way that you'd like to uh, – what you'd like to see, what kinds of content knowledge or uh, skills that you think your new hires should have, I do hope that you'll feel free to talk to me about it as we're working on our curriculum. I, too, want to say it was a real pleasure to be here, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm going to sort of piggyback off to something that Mana said earlier about the manager and employer relationship because I feel like in the consulting work that I do across many industries, it's probably the topic I end up spending most of my time on. Um, So after all the good recruiting programs are in place and you've got all this great development, the ability to execute that really comes down to the difference in the relationship between the manager and the individual employee. Um, and that's something that's hard to uh, really hardwire at the HR level. So for all of the great consulting work that Hewitt does, at the end of the day, um, you know, convincing managers to take the time, which is very challenging out of the 150% of your time dedicated to actually getting the job done, um, to find some of the time to spend on the manager-employer relationship and having the right conversations and figuring out how to bridge the gap of, across the generations is probably one of the big turning points to being able to hold on to your critical talent in the future. So I guess that's my parting thought is to continue to think about developing that very complex relationship. Yeah, this was a real pleasure for me. I appreciate you all being here and asking some great questions. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. For me, I, I think in addition to, to what has been shared already, my parting advice would be know your workforce. You know, Peter Drucker said a few years ago, demographics will change everything. Demographics are changing everything. One of the things that we just recently completed was a workforce assessment to understand when our supply and demand curve will intersect and when exactly we will have shortages in those key talent streams that I talked about. So we now know, because of that assessment, in about 10 years, that's about how much time we have because in 10 years we're, we're going to have a major drop-off. So do your assessment, know your demographics, understand your risk, and factor that into your planning because being proactive in planning is probably one of the most important things that you can do. And as I said earlier, it may be tempting to pull back on some of your activities and some of your development and your, and your people processes and programs, but this might actually be the time to invest. And your demographic assessment, your workforce assessment, your workforce planning will inform those decisions. It was eye-opening for us when we completed that. There were quite a few surprises there. Please join me in thanking our panelists today.